the, the month of December where we celebrate and acknowledge that incarnational moment of Christ coming and taking on human flesh and being the spirit-filled God-man. And so we acknowledge this and we say, great are you, Lord. May our lives reflect that in the decisions and the priorities and the approaches we have. And now as we consider your word, we pray that you would speak to us. You know, when we hear your word, when we take it seriously, when we allow it to transform us, this is an act of worship. This is an act of humbleness. This is an act of reverence. And we do it now with glad hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Bill was always wound too tight. And he was an extremely volatile guy. And so, you know, some people said you need to take some time and chill a little bit. And so he arranged to go hunting with his friend Mickey. And Mickey had been hunting on his friend's land. He had a vast farm range and lots of cattle. And uh, he, they had hunt, he had hunted on this land many times. So he said to Bill, well, let's go hunting on my friend's land. And when he got there, uh, Mickey said to Bill, just wait in the car, in the truck. I'll go in and talk to my friend. He goes in and of course the friend says, oh, sure, go and hunt. You know, this, you've been doing this for years. And he says, Mickey, would you do me a favor though? He says, out in the barn is my favorite horse, my pet horse, you know the horse. But the horse is old, and he's gone completely blind, and he's suffering, and it's time to put the horse down, but I just don't have the heart to do it. Would you do it for me? And Mickey said, oh, sure, I'll do that for you. And as he's heading out to the car, out to the truck, rather, he, he decides to have some fun with Bill and play a joke on Bill. So he comes out to the truck, and he acts like he's just furious, and he slams the door, and he says, I can't believe that guy. He told, after all these years I've been hunting on his land, he said we can't hunt on his land, and this is going to like wreck our trip. And he says, I'll show him, and he jumps in the truck, and he says, I'm going to shoot one of his horses. And so he roars down to the barn, piles on the brakes, jumps out of the truck, grabs his rifle, runs in there, and shoots the horse. And as he's coming out of the barn, he hears two more shots in the, par in the lot. And he sees Bill with his gun, and there's smoke coming out of the end of his rifle. And he says, what are you doing? I said, we showed him. I just shot two of his cows. Anger or rage is a dangerous thing. We're going to talk about a Bible character that lost it one too many times. I was reading psychology today, and some psychologists, um, not all of them, but obviously, but some of them have concluded that there's five levels of intensity in terms of anger. The first level is just irritation, you're, you're uneasy, something is slightly disturbing, you know, you're upset with people like me that, you know, you're irritated because I squeezed the tube of toothpaste in the middle. The second level, they say, is indignation, and we're, this is our reaction. We'll react in some way to uh, something we perceive as being unreasonable or unfair, like any kind of prejudice that we see, we get indignant about. The third level, it's getting more and more intense, is wrath, 
And in that one, we, we really begin to take action and we're looking to avenge ourselves or to defend ourselves. Then comes fury, the fourth level, where it just manifests itself typically in some violent way, typically with some unconscious, almost temporary loss of sanity. And so you're so angry, you slam the door so hard that it breaks or you put your fist through the wall or you beat your pillow senseless. And then the last one is rage, where you just explode. And as I said, our character today, let his rage get the best of him one too many times. Thing is, anger can have a positive side too. And if it's handled in a biblical way, it could be a very productive useful emotion. And so what is the proper way for me as a follower of Jesus to express anger? How can I get good and mad and yet not sin? And it's all part of this series of messages we're doing when God leads the way. And it's the story of God taking the children of Israel out of captivity. They've been enslavement for 400 years. They were promised prior to that that one day they would be brought out of slavery and taken to a land, the promised land. And we've been in this series for some time now. And we've seen God miraculously, supernaturally do the, the 10 plagues and to take them through the, the Red Sea and out into the wilderness and provide for them with food and sustenance and water and uh, give them the Ten Commandments and all those kinds of things. And they've been going on this massive journey of sort of disorientation. And at points they've done okay, but at many points they haven't done so well. And we've been saying, we've been on a journey these last 20 months or so. And... uh, A number of us, perhaps, are doing quite well through the journey in the world in the last 20 months, but a number of people haven't been handling the journey very well at all. And so today we're going to talk about Moses and anger. And sometimes Moses' anger manifested it appropriately, and sometimes really not. And it was his besetting sin. The people of Israel had besetting sin, which we talked about, which we'll reference today. But Moses' besetting sin was uncontrolled anger. We saw this in Exodus chapter 2 earlier in the series. He's at that point the adopted grandson of Pharaoh. He's got power, but he finds out that he's actually a Hebrew. He goes out amongst all the Hebrew slaves. He sees one of the Egyptian taskmasters abusing, beating on one of the Hebrew slaves. He loses it. He murders the guy and hides the body and tries to cover it up. Now, was he right to be angry in that situation? Absolutely. But he handled it and overreacted in an inappropriate way. In chapter 11, he is hot with anger, it says, when Pharaoh stubbornly refuses to listen to God. He's seen all of the plagues unfolding, and Jehovah God is showing Pharaoh, all these gods that you worship, all the worship that you suggest deserves to come your way, Pharaoh, as you see yourself as a god. You are not God. They are not God. Jehovah God is God, and he's shown this to you supernaturally on a nationwide scale ten times. And Pharaoh continues to say, no, I won't let the people go, will not humble himself. And in chapter 11, it says, Moses 
announces the 10th the plague, and he's hot with anger. And so this was a very appropriate response. Last week, we were in chapter 32 of Exodus. We see the Israelites, along with Moses at Mount Sinai, He's been up on the mountain for a period of time during which God has given him the Ten Commandments. And during the long time, which was commonly the case for these people, they get off the rails. And they begin to clamor for other gods because they want to be just like everyone else. And they force, and and Aaron doesn't have any courage, he's a coward, and they worship the golden calf. And Moses comes down off the mountain, And it says he's filled with righteous indignation and his anger burned against the sin of the people. But he let God deal with this situation. So again, he allowed his anger to manifest appropriately. Much earlier in this series, in Exodus chapter 17, the people were exhibiting their besetting sin, which is something they did over and over again. And they're grumbling and they're angry because they don't have any water. They're out in the desert-like area. And Moses cries out to God. In verse 6, it says, in, in chapter 17 of Exodus, Moses, it says, I will stand before you by the rock of Horeb, strike the rock, And water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And God miraculously saves them and gives them water to drink. After a period of time, they approach the promised land. And Moses sends 12 spies into the land to check it out, to see what they're going to have to do to take the promised land. When they come back, 10 of them say, we can't do it. We can't trust God. God's promised us to do it. We know he's done all these other things, but we can't trust him in this situation. We shouldn't go up into the land. Two of the men say, no way. We can trust God. We can do this. We need to move forward and head into the land and take the land as God promised. But the people choose not to go. They listen to the 10. They wouldn't trust God. And so God says, okay, You can all die off in this wilderness, wandering around aimlessly for 40 years. And when a new generation of people comes to the forefront, we'll see if they're ready to follow me. And so 40 years goes by, and everyone dies off except the two spies that says we should go in, and and Moses and Aaron. And once again, they are approaching the promised land, getting ready to enter and cross the Jordan. And the spot we're in the text today is the new generation of people is thirsty again. Now understand something clearly. This is important to understand. They practiced the oral tradition. So at the end of the work day, they would sit around and they would tell the stories of God around the fireplace over and over and over again. This is how these truths were passed down at this point. And so they all, this new generation, they've heard the stories. We were in slavery. God did these 10 supernaturally mind-boggling things over and over again. He then parted the Red Sea. He provided manna. He provided quail. He provided water out of the rock back in Exodus chapter 17. He's done all of these things. But they are thirsty, the new generation. 
Let's pick up the action in chapter 20 of Numbers. If you have your device or your Bible, I invite you to turn to the fourth book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 20, which is a kind of a parallel to what you see in Exodus. Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. Then Miriam died, that's uh, the sister, died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Sound familiar? This is something their parents did all the time. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And they exhibit the besetting sin of their parents and now their own generation. They fight against God. They fight against the leader. They grumble. They rumble. They complain. They argue. They get mad. And this generational sin has been passed down to them, and they're following their parents' example. And I just pause, and I ask you this. What are you passing on to your kids and your grandkids? We pass stuff on. What are they seeing? What's our attitude like in life as we go through these last 20 months? Are we grumblers? Are we complainers? Or are we the people like the two who said, we can trust God. Yeah, this is going to be tough, but we can trust God. He's been faithful all the way through. We can trust him. Generational sin. What are we passing on? Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will bring out its water. Remember what I did before, Moses? I'm going to do something like that again. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. I pause again. Obedience is an act of worship. When we say yes to God, we are worshiping him. Obedience is an act of reverence. It's an act of holding God in awe. Obedience is an act of humbleness. And so God is saying, hey, Moses, I'm going to handle this. I want you to hold out your staff and speak to the rock, and it will pour out water. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out. And the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring the community into the land I give them. 
These were the waters of Mirabah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he showed himself holy among them. Moses has added up to here with these people. This no generation is no better than the last. Forty years of accumulated anger and frustration just boils over in rage. And he says, listen, you rebels, do we have to get water for you out of this rock? And in his anger, he takes the honor for the miracle for himself. And he disobeys what God told him to do. And in his rage, he strikes the rock with the staff twice when he was supposed to simply speak to the rock. And God says, that's it. You will not lead the people into the promised land. And his actions, it says in verse 12, has shown a lack of trust. I don't trust God to deal with their sin. All through my life, as I've led them, I've seen him deal with their sin over and over and over again. We talked about how God dealt with their sin last week. Moses got angry, but he let God deal with it, and God dealt with their sin in chapter 32 of Exodus. But this time, I'm going to take care of getting after them myself. Verse 12 says, he insulted as well. He insulted God's holiness. And as the leader, he has a special responsibility in this area. And Moses is calling into question whether God is worthy to be obeyed. And that is a very, very serious thing to do. Psalm 106, actually, in commenting on this, says that this was an act of rebellion. And interestingly enough, Moses meets their anger, Moses meets their grumbling, with his own anger, and as he's calling them rebels, he's in fact being a rebel himself. And this is what uncontrolled rage leads us to do. It's interesting because in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, you can read it, it says, you who are spiritual, in other words, people that have a mature faith, a growing faith in Christ, you who are spiritual, if someone is caught in a sin, go and restore them gently. Don't pretend like it didn't happen. Don't just gloss over it. It needs to be dealt with, but it needs to be dealt with gently. But watch yourself, the end of the verse says, watch yourself lest you also be tempted. And this is exactly what happens here. He calls them out for being rebels at the very moment he's being a rebel himself. Some people also see the rock as a type of Christ, sort of a, an illustration, a foreshadowing of what Jesus will be like. And so in striking the rock, it's a demeaning act directed towards God. You know, we're a pragmatic society, largely. We will often just say, hey, give me what works. I'm thirsty. Give me water. I don't care how it happens. But for God, if you read Bible, you know that for God... The process is just as important as the end product. And so for Moses, this uncontrolled anger, this this rage that he expresses, he blows it. And he forfeits his right after all this time to go into the promised land. And it's an incredibly sad moment. 
And as I'm reading this, you know, I've read it many times before, but as I was reading it again, I'm thinking, I wonder how many of us have endured really painful results in life because we let our anger get the best of us. Now, God can deal with that, but consequences attach. As I said earlier, we often think of anger as only a negative emotion, and yet the Bible says, we're going to read it in a moment, uh, be angry and don't let, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So you can be angry and not sin. Now, I've heard people, and they'll say this kind of stuff to me over the years, they'll say, well, um, you know, a real Christian, a real follower of Christ, someone who's on the journey with Jesus will never get mad. I've had them say things like that to me. And yet God gets angry. In Exodus chapter 4, in the, earlier in the series, it says that God, his anger burned against Moses because Moses did not want to accept God's assignment for his life. In Exodus chapter 32, which we looked at last week, again, God's anger burns hot and he is prepared to wipe out the entire nation of Israel because of the things they've done. In Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, it says, God expresses his wrath every day. Every day. In Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus is angry at the stubborn hearts of the Pharisees. In John chapter 2, we know this story. He fashions a cord of whips and he throws everybody out of the temple. And he was angry when he did it. God gets angry. Why? God gets angry if you chart it all through the scripture. He gets angry at sin. He gets angry at rebellion. He gets angry at wrongdoing. He gets angry at injustice. And so it's very clear because God cannot sin, scripture teaches, that anger in and of itself is not a sin. Anger is simply a neutral emotion that in and of itself is neither sinful nor holy. It's what we do as a result of anger that either morphs into sin and to heartache and to hurt for yourself and for others or into something holy. And we all get angry at one time or another. And generally the way we handle it is one of two ways. We either blow up or we clam up. Depending on the kind of person we are, we lean one way or the other. And so some people, some people in the behavioral sciences will suggest it's just best to blow up. Just get it out. Because if you leave it inside you, it's going to rot your gut. But what does the scripture say about this? Part of the fruit of the Spirit, which we're going to read about in a moment, is when a person is surrendered and filled with the Spirit, there will be nine elements to the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's written in the singular because all nine will be manifested to a degree and in a growing degree in our life when we're filled with the Spirit. One of the nine elements, gifts are different. People get at least one gift or multiple gifts. That's why that's in the plural. The fruit of the Spirit, one of the nine elements, is self-control. And so flying off the handle, blowing a gasket, expressing rage, is not self-control. In fact, it says in Psalm 19, 19, a hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. 
There are consequences attached when we blow up, when we lose it, when we rant and rave, when we fly into a rage. I've said this next one before, but Lawrence Peters said this, speak when you're angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. And so blowing up is out of the question. And so most Christians will default to number two. Most followers of Jesus, they say to themselves, well, you know, I can't blow up and hit the roof and scream and rant and rave, and so I'm going to clam up because that's the more spiritual looking route to follow. And some people would categorize this as becoming a type of passive-aggressive person. And the sort of the watchwords for the clam-up crowd is, well, I'm just going to let sleeping dogs lie. I'm going to smile on the outside while I burn on the inside. And I would suggest to you that clamming up is every bit as sinful as blowing up. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is speaking. He says this, you brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, when we shove it down and cram it in there and don't deal with it, it just starts to churn inside us. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil up out of the evil stored up in him. And so when we store it up, when we cram it down, when we act like it doesn't bother us, it begins to churn within us, and pretty soon it turns into resentment, and after a while, it takes another sour turn, and it turns into bitterness, and it begins to influence our life. We might get sick, we we rant and rave at the wrong people eventually, and it does no good in our life. Well, then what am I supposed to do with my anger? How is it that God can get angry every day, express wrath every day, and yet not sin? Well, again, if you have your device or your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians, which is sort of in the heart of the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's one of those four little books there as he writes to the church at Ephesus. And chapter 4 and 5 is all about being filled with the Spirit. It's all about what it looks like when you give your life to Christ, the first three chapters say, here's all the stuff that Jesus has done for us. And then in chapter four, there's this dramatic shift in the text in verse one. It says, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, live as a child of the light should. And then it talks in chapter four and five and six about what it means to walk in the spirit, to be filled with the spirit. And it says, this is God's will for every Christian. Be filled and keep on being with the Spirit. Chapter 4 of, of Ephesians, beginning in verse 22, Paul writes to the church, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. In other words, before you came to Christ, because when you come to Christ, you become a new creation. You were taught in accordance with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So after you come to faith, we go on this everyday journey with Jesus where he's, he's forming Christ in us and we're reflecting Christ more and more. We do this in the power of the Spirit. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood 
and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. When we clam up and we don't deal with it, we are giving the devil a foothold in our life. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. That's a strong statement, eh? And then verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So self-control, as I said earlier, is one of those nine elements of the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of the power of being filled with the Spirit. And we recognize that anger is a neutral emotion. It's given to us by God as a motivation to action. We're a very uh, sort of subdued culture, generally speaking, right? We just kind of sit back and take it. Anger comes as a motivation to action. And when we get a little steamed, we want to do something about whatever it is that's steaming us up. And God has given this as a good gift to us. He gives us this hot emotion that will encourage us to do the right thing. And remembering that it's an element of the Spirit is, is self-control. And so really the first step when we're angry is to not go out and shoot somebody's cows. But to stop and say, God, am I right to be angry here? And if I am right to be angry here, would you give me the grace and the power by the filling of the Spirit to do what I should to speak and to live the truth in this situation? So we cool down. It's really what it's saying in verse 26. We get control in the power of the Spirit, and then within a reasonable amount of time, It's not saying you should not go to sleep until this has been dealt with and you should stay awake for 48 hours straight or something crazy. You'll sometimes hear people say stuff like that. It's just saying, don't let a long period of time go by. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do is go and have a good sleep and a good meal and then go and deal with the issue. If you're really tired or really hungry, not a good time to do it. And so we say, God, am I right to be angry at this, or was it just me messing up? And they had the temerity to point out how I've messed up. Remember that when God gets angry, God gets angry at sin, at wrongdoing, at rebellion, at injustice. And sometimes we're just angry because we were wrong. Someone pointed that out to us. The next thing the passage says is, address the person or thing that has caused the anger. What do we often do? We go to work, the boss gets mad at us and treats us unfairly. We're upset with the boss and how he treated us, he or she. And rather than going privately to the boss and talk to them, what do we do? We go home and we yell at our kids. And if this is how we handle it, by not addressing the person or the issue itself, we need to repent and apologize to our kids. You know, if there's something 
your sp- spouse does that upsets you. Don't, you know, sometimes we have this convoluted thinking. So they've upset me, and what I'm going to do, I think the godly thing to do here, is I'm going to wait until they upset me five times. So I'm really upset, and then I'll have a really good excuse to tie into them good. Don't avoid conflict. This is one of the biggest deals in the Christian church. We run from conflict. And then we turn into a Moses. Because we let it accumulate and then boom, we blow. Or whatever we do. When an issue comes up, what does the text say? It says, don't lie. Put off falsehood, it says in verse 25. Don't lie to your spouse when your spouse says to you, we've been married for 10 years, I know you pretty well, and I can tell something's bugging you. What's bothering you, honey? And we say to them, nothing. And we lie to them. But a much better response would be, you know what? Something's bothering me, but I just, I just need a little time. We talk about this later. So let's pick a time tonight at 8 o'clock. When we're not too tired, we've had something to eat, the kids have been put to bed, whatever, and we'll have some time in private to talk. But instead, we are often tempted to lie to them and say nothing. And earlier in the text, it says, a mature believer speaks the truth in love. A mature believer, it says in verse 29, says, do not I'm not going to let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. So I don't blow up like Moses did and lose it and smash the rock and say, I don't trust you, God. You're not holy, God. And I did this miracle, God, and all that kind of stuff. I don't blow up and personally attack the people like Moses did. I don't clam up and have a pity party for one until it turns into bitterness and I have a heart attack or high blood pressure or whatever. And so I say, instead I say, I'm surrendered to you, Father. You fill me with your spirit. You help me to cool down. I'm a little bugged right now. Would you help me to cool down? And within a reasonable amount of time, move to deal with the problem. God, am I right to be angry here? Or am I just bugged because they recognized in me something that needs to be dealt with and I messed up here? Or is it because of sin? And you are motivating me to address sin and to deal and to speak with the truth in love and deal with this. I'm going to invite our team to come forward now. Moses had this moment or moments of rage, and he missed the promised land. What are we missing because of this stuff? When we let anger cause us to blow up or clam up, what are we missing? What are we passing on to the next generation? How can I get good and angry and yet not 